today's episode of MicroConf on Air. I'm your host, Rob Wallen. Every other Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, we live stream for 30 minutes and we cover topics related to building and growing ambitious SaaS startups that bring us freedom and purpose and allow us to value and maintain healthy relationships. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to talk about this topic of moving from a bootstrapped founder to getting venture funding. Today's guest, producer Xander and I have been talking to and courting to get on the show for a few months, and she has just a wide uh, breadth of experience having bootstrapped her first SaaS company. It's called Support B. You can view that at supportb.com. She bootstrapped it to 45,000 in MRR. Support B is a ticketing system for collaborative customer support. And she built it with a co-founder over the course, on and off over the course of nine years, and then exited that her stake in 2020. Then she started her next startup, Magic Bell, magicbell.com, and has raised almost $2 million in a seed round. Magic Bell is the embeddable notification inbox for SaaS apps. And she is part of Y Combinator, let's see, Winter 21, winner class of 21 and was number two on product hunt as well as having as being as sending more than 1 million notifications every month so with that let me welcome hana mohan to microconf on air hana thanks so much for joining me hey rob hi it's great to have you thank you yeah. sorry it's great to be here uh, it's great yeah, tell i'm a bit nervous to be talking to a legend like yourself. Oh my goodness. It's your flattery will get you nowhere, Hana. No, it's really good to have you on here because very few founders have bootstrapped experience to mid five figures who then go on to raise a round later to the extent that you have. And I, I've bootstrapped several things and then exited and, and w- worked within a venture funded company. So I know both sides of it. I still haven't you know done all the things you've done. So I think there's a lot to dig into today and I'm excited about it. Yeah, As a reminder, as a reminder, if you're in MicroConf Connect in the MicroConf on air channel, please feel free to start asking questions. I have a few queued up, but given Hannah's experience, I, I think that, that there's a lot we can dig into today. So I think to kick us off, I'm curious, you've been on, on both sides of this and I view funding as a continuum. I think a lot of people know it. it's used to just be bootstrapped and venture funded, but now there's angel networks, there's tiny seed. So it really is like this continuum of raising, but in your experience with Support B and then Magic Bell, like what have been some of the biggest differences between bootstrapping and build it, starting to build a company that has so much funding? Sure. So obviously, as you, like it's more similar than not, right? So it's all the same sort of struggle and it's all the same sort of uncertainty that you have to go through. So obviously, funding doesn't change that. But I do think that it enables you to think a little bit more long-term early on itself. So you're not just trying to survive. You're not trying to just get the next customer or like waiting to hit a certain milestone to hire the person that you think you need. So in that sense, it's just a little bit more enabling. And in terms of just like how it feels, at least for me, I would say thinking about the sort of the vision piece and just selling that big vision to customers, but also other stakeholders like investors, employees, that's just a lot more, I think, in a in a funded startup than it's in bootstrapped startups. We can go into like more details, but I would say like that was like the first thing that I was surprised about was just how often you find yourself talking about five years from now. Whereas before I was just worrying about like how to get to break even and how to get to just a certain milestone. Yeah, I find that when bootstrapping, you're looking a month or three months ahead. And it sounds like your experience with raising funding is you have to be convincing customers and investors that, hey, there's a vision here to yeah. get to 
a much larger company over the course course of years. Did you have any other? I went through Y Combinator, which obviously is you know one of the gold standards in accelerators, and then you raised your round at Demo Day. Did you have other opportunities for funding, or was Y Combinator kind of your first pick, and and you got in, and that was it? I think I applied to maybe one or two other accelerators, and then I didn't really get in. And then I got into Y Combinator and in terms of funding, I was having some conversations before, but I think as you probably know that there needs to be a forcing function to close money. And typically like the demo day is a really good forcing function. And so I think while I was having conversations, it was really the demo day that brought it all together. But certainly it wasn't just that one day of talking to investors that led to it, but more kind of building the relationships over a few months, just culminating into the actual funding around the demo day. Yeah. That makes sense. You've written a lot. You've been pretty transparent with your story and we should link some of these up, but you have a medium post called advice for entrepreneurs experiencing small business puberty, five valuable lessons learned from building a B2B SaaS company. And you've done an AMA on indie hackers. I am a transgender entrepreneur. I bootstrapped to over 40K MRR, ask me anything, as well as an article also on your Medium channel at starting a new tech business as a transgender woman. And I love the transparency, the being transparent with your journey and helping share your lessons learned, I think is both inspiring, but is also can help those folks who are just looking for that way to, to put that next foot in front of the other. I'm curious from your perspective, obviously your experience as a transgender woman had to have impacted, or it feels like it, it, it certainly has impacted your journey. And we've talked about it in some of these articles, but how do you feel like maybe bootstrapping was different for you as a transgender woman, or perhaps your, funded, your experience raising funding, if, if at all? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would actually say that in some ways, Transitioning was easier as a bootstrap entrepreneur because you control the pace of your startup very much like without any external influence. So I could take a lot of time off between 2016 and early 20 to just focus on my transition. So I would say if you want to transition, then probably bootstrapping a startup is actually better, at least for that while. I don't really know of any one who's done it while being a CEO of a funded startup. I can't imagine like doing it. And in terms of how the experience was, so I realized I'm trans and started transitioning much later in my journey in support B, but I do think some of the anxiety of being trans that I couldn't really understand and attribute to being transgender was misattributed to not being like a believer in what I did or so I think like yeah. I found it a little bit challenging to invest myself entirely into my startup because I was feeling all this anxiety and I kept thinking that maybe it's because my startup isn't growing or I don't love working on this idea or, and I would have these moments of going in and out. So it was a bit of a negative influence in that way, but then I'm very grateful to the business for giving me the space to transition. So I would say it did more for me than I did for it in some kind of right. like ironical way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. But we talk so much about this term lifestyle business and having the freedom to do things and, and to do what you want and whether that's to work. For me, it was to, at one point it was to work 12 hours a week and spend time with my newborn or for you, it was the freedom and the ability to, to transition, which as you said, would be very hard under most other circumstances where you are not in, in control of the business. Even if you are, if you've raised a lot of funding, you have this, this mandate to grow. And I, I can imagine that being pretty challenging. We have a listener qu audience question that I really like, and I think you and I can probably both answer this. Sure. It's a fun one. What is more fun? bootstrapping or being on the VC path? 
So I want to mention that I've only been on the VC path for two or three months, and this is just the post seed. Terms are infinitely more favorable for entrepreneurs right now during the seed stage. There's no board seat given out. There's no control. So this is like the honeymoon phase. So now with with that in mind, I would say they both have their like moments, right? Like we were talking, if you have, if you know what you want to do with your freedom and with your flexibility of time, and then one day you want to work, one day maybe you want to. Uh, control your pace i think bootstrapping can be a lot of fun but if you do want to like think a little bit bigger and you want to build up a big vision and then either see it fail or succeed and you want to play it like that i think there's a certain sort of fun in in that for me i, I yeah. don't know what it is for you what i found was having a big a big pile of funding behind us after drip was acquired i worked there for almost two years. And so while I didn't personally raise the funding, we had 38 million in, in venture funding. And I found for me, it was a easier to be more ambitious to try to triple or quadruple instead of just double. That was a thing that you just have more money so you can hire faster and you can market more and you can spend more on ads. That was kind, That was fun. The other thing I liked is I was able to hire, I was able to fire myself from all the jobs I didn't like. Right when I was a bootstrap founder with a team of 10, I still did a ton of things that I couldn't delegate to anyone. I didn't want to slow my, my co-founder who was building product. I didn't want to slow him down with a bunch of operation stuff, but we really didn't have the budget or I didn't want to go hire an ops person because we could have another developer or we could have another customer success person. So there were certain advantages there. So I think if you really do want to grow, or at least in my experience, it was less stressful having the funding and it was, I'll say easier, but on the flip side, to your point, if you want the freedom and and kind of the lifestyle, which I had for the whatever 10 years prior to selling Drip in 2016, then that's got to win out. And certainly raising venture, there are ways to raise small amounts of money and not have a bunch of pressure on you. Raise from tiny seed, raise from angel investors. But yeah, if you are going to go the venture track, I think there's a certainly going to be a, a pressure, an external pressure that you feel, even if your investors aren't breathing down your neck, you're two or three oh, months absolutely. in, yeah probably don't have investors saying, grow faster, grow faster, but you just feel like you should because you've made an implicit promise. Also, I think if you're part of a class like Y Combinator, people around you like just crushing their goals and it's, it's overwhelming, but then it's also inspiring. So the reality isn't lost on you that a lot of people know how to grow really fast. Yeah. So the, yeah, it, it's always there. Yeah. We have another question, a good question from Kartik from YouTube. And he says, bootstrapping is usually considered a long-term game, but that isn't the perception of a VC, a venture-backed startup. And I think he's implying that so there are bootstrappers out there who say, I want to run this for 20 or 30 years and take profits out versus venture usually has a clock attached to it of, hey, we need an, an IPO or an exit in five to 10 years. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this notion? I think that just depends on the personality of the founder. So if you look at some of the companies like Twilio or Zendesk, one of our competitors for support would be Zendesk and I met their CEO and, you know, they think really long-term and very committed, like Airbnb, I doubt they'll ever exit out of the business. Even an IPO is just a fundraising event, honestly. Yep. I think that's just up to you as a founder. You can always choose to say no um, to certain exits. So I think like, uh, in, in that way, bootstrapped, like I said, bootstrapped and funded startups are quite similar that you will maybe making these decisions in both of them as a bootstrapper as well. There's a pretty good market to exit now and you'll keep getting offers once you're at a certain scale. Yep. And that's right. And 
I would almost argue, I would argue with the notion that bootstrapping is considered a long-term game because most of the bootstrappers I know exit. They do exit because they eventually get yeah, tired. I mean, sure. we can point a couple. Yes, there's Basecamp and there's MailChimp and Buffer. I mean, there's a, there are a handful that have been around for 10 or sure. 15, 10 plus years. But I, I never thought, to be honest, when we were building Drip, I didn't think I was going to exit. But someone offers you enough money that you never have to work again. You can fund your kids' call. Like suddenly it was like, oh, really? So I can de-risk this entire thing? Like it, it rocks your world. I didn't think Josh from Bear Metrics would ever sell. He sold. We could yeah, go through the absolutely. whole list of people. So as, you, as you're saying, there's a real, when you're, if you're netting $300,000 a year on your business and someone comes and offers you three million, four and a half, five million dollars yeah. for this business, you do the math quick. It's it's interesting. Another question uh, from Pablo, or a question from Pablo. May I just and, add one more thing? Yes, Sorry. please do. So the other thing is like, if you're a funded startup and you're doing well, you can actually take a partial exit and then not exit. So you can take like a secondary sort of like sale of stock and then you can take some money off the table. So I would argue that you can actually go more long-term in a funded startup in that way, because the market for secondary stocks uh, sale exists, which doesn't exist for bootstrap startups. Not really. It's fair. It's there's one or two investors I know that do it and it's very, it's very nascent space and you're right. The mm -hmm. secondary of what is it? Secondmarket.com. There's four or five players where you can just, sure. you're just selling. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Everyone knows it's hard to grow an online business, especially in the early days. People are becoming desensitized to content marketing and paid advertisements. Instead, they're turning to product recommendations from people they trust. So how do you cut through the noise and grow through word of mouth? This is where Rewardful comes in. Rewardful has everything you need to start referral marketing for your SaaS, membership, or e-commerce business. Reward your advocates whenever they send you paying customers. Rewardful is specifically built to work with Stripe and automatically handles one-time charges, free trials, upgrades, downgrades, cancellations, and refunds. They can even help you find and recruit relevant affiliates for your industry. Companies like Transistor, Podia, and Bear Metrics trust Rewardful to power their affiliate programs and scale with their growth. Spencer Fry from Podia says, every other affiliate platform we looked at was either insanely expensive or full of bugs, and sometimes both. Rewardful has been rock solid. It took less than 15 minutes to install. It's the perfect affiliate solution for SaaS companies using Stripe. Whether you're looking to start an affiliate program, partner program, customer referral program, or all the above, Rewardful lets you manage everything under one roof with a simple 15-minute integration. Pablo in MicroConf Connect asks, in what way can the world of startups improve to be more friendly, accepting, and inclusive to trans people? Okay, I appreciate the question, first of all, obviously. And uh, I think startups are farther ahead than most other, I would say, like older organizations and governments in terms of trans acceptance. So that's already a pretty good start. I think obviously healthcare is a big one. If you provide insurance, like offering insurance to to enable people to transition is a big one. Like when I was on active on the forums on Reddit, some people would actually quit their good job and go work as a barista at Starbucks because Starbucks had a very inclusive insurance program and they covered your transitioning. Just I think about like how much support exists for pregnancy. And it's definitely like a choice that people make to have children, but they get all the support from the world. And now just think about like, how can you replicate that for something like transitioning, which feels like a choice, but it's actually very much medically necessitated. 
So having like leaves for transgender people, having insurance, just having a welcoming culture of bringing them back. And I think there's a lot of parallels there and that that's probably like a good place to start, I would say. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for the I question. I mean, apart from obviously like the pronouns and the other stuff, I would say if you want to go deeper, I would say healthcare is the big one. Yeah. And I like what you're saying there because on my radar would of course be pronouns and acceptance and just the, the surface level stuff. But when you bring it up like that with medical care and leave to be able to do it, not something I would have thought of. Glad I'm not going to be able to. Uh, a lot of these I weigh in on that this one, I don't have any insights. Dan, Dan from MicroConf Connect, he says, when do you quit your full-time job when you're burning the midnight oil building a bootstrap business? Huh, that's a tough one to answer. It just, I doubt that, like some people actually build it up enough that they can then quit because they have whatever enough money going, you could raise a little bit of friends and family around and then quit. I do think you want to try to avoid burn yourself out. So if you think that's where you're headed, you're better off taking at least some money from your friends and family and using that to quit your job. I think it also puts more pressure on you to actually make it work. Sometimes like a side project can stay a side project for too long otherwise. So I, I say that, yeah, just don't burn yourself out. The job market is so great that especially if you're a programmer or a marketer or a salesperson, you can always get rehired or you can always do some consulting. So you can restructure your life a bit from a full-time job to maybe some consulting and then take more time out. Yeah, that's a model I often see is consulting during the day or consulting part-time, saving up enough money for six months off, perhaps having a I think that's Yeah, it's yeah, not uncommon. Is- I know... Yeah, trying to slice it. I agree. It puts more pressure on you because let's say you save up thirty, forty thousand dollars and then you're just watching that melt that ice cube melt. I think there's but to your point, then your back is to the wall and you're whether you're stressed or not, you're at least really gonna try to execute and make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back when I moved, when I so quit my day job, so to speak, I was a consultant still at the time. And so I was working like eight hours a day and then working nights and weekends. It was tiring. And to your point, yeah. I didn't burn out, but I certainly came close. I didn't know any other way. A, I was pretty risk averse, so I was scared. And even though I had enough money in the bank to quit, I was very, I didn't want it to go sideways. I also didn't really have a a role model of seeing someone do this. This is 2008, 2009, and I hadn't seen anyone bootstrap a business during the day and do it. So I think there's a level of comfort and risk tolerance here. If you're pretty risk tolerant, I think you can quit a lot earlier than someone like I did. What was your story, Hana, in terms of did you have money in the bank or did you work a day job and do nights and weekends? So I didn't. I was just like foolish enough to quit it and think that it would all work out. (laughs) And then I did have to do actually some consulting. So this was like, I started up in 2007. And so I was doing a B2C startup before Support B. And I did the same thing, but I would consult like maybe three or four months a year. And then they'd keep Mm -hmm. the rest of the time uh, just to work on my startup. And, and that's like got us to just like a ramen profitability for the B2C startup called Musibu. And then we started support B and, and then we again had to do some consulting. And then it was only a few years later that it broke even and, and we could just live off it. Yeah. Question from Jessica Baldwin in the chat. She says, now that you have more resources and the ability to grow your team, what are some of the responsibilities you plan to delegate or perhaps already are delegating? Maybe I should preface that with saying like, how large is your team right now? 
Yeah, so I think like this is an interesting point to uh, talk about. When people think about raising money, they think that you raise money and then you immediately start spending it and you have almost no control over it. Like people talk about, actually most startups early on just raise money and then keep it. And they almost hire nobody or they maybe hire one or two people. So our team is still pretty much just my co-founder and I, and we have <laughs> somebody working with us part-time. We'll probably come on board full-time and we're trying to hire one, one more person full-time. But I think like until most startups, at least like off YC, that's, that's their advice. Don't hit product market fit. They don't actually go out and hire. So I still don't believe very much in this idea of and a lot of startups that raise something like we have raised like 2 million, probably already have a 10 to 12 people team in three to four months. And it works out for some of them. It doesn't work out for a lot of them. So earlier, it's very much like a bootstrap plus, I would say, in the sense that you don't have to think about getting like somebody and paying them a hundred dollars an hour or, but it's not that you entirely change the model. In, in our case, like we want to hire maybe one or two programmers and like in the front end, back end, we want to hire a product person early on because we think that's really useful. And that's about it. Uh, as a founder, you got to do the sales yourself. You got to talk to your customers directly. So in that way, it's very much like a bootstrap startup. I think the, it starts diverging only post product market fit in yeah. my, in my limited experience, I think. I think that's great insight. And I think a big piece of it that people don't realize is they, again, they look at it as this binary bootstrapped or, or funded, but I've pointed to entrepreneurs like Jordan Gall with a cart hook. And I used to say he's still a bootstrap founder, even though he's raised, however, you know, many hundreds of thousands or, or millions of dollars. And the term we've been using lately is bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped. And that mostly bootstrapped no, are people yeah, who have one. raised funding, but they still run it like it's very capital efficient. To your point, you're, you have 2 million in the bank and it's just the two of you because until you hit yeah. market fit, you know, you don't want a bunch of folks burning up. The it's payroll. also just early on, like you're still trying to like, it's like having a rocket or whatever, right? Like you're not really a rocket. You are a little like boat that's trying to find its direction. And it is actually much easier with a smaller team. So you really want to keep it small. But then once you're certain of the direction, that's when you want to like fire up the engines and you want to go full blast. But if you do it a little bit too soon, then you're just going to fire off in a wrong direction and it'll be very hard to turn around. And so then to Jessica's question, she was saying that you have the ability to grow your team, you have resources. What are some of the first responsibilities when you do start hiring? What are some of the first responsibilities you plan to delegate? You've mentioned a couple of developers. I'm curious, I've yeah. seen a model recently where founders who raise money, they'll early on, they'll hire like a chief of staff or a director of operations, someone who just handles all the miscellaneous stuff. Is that something you've thought about or, or what else aside from development are you thinking of delegating? I think it's definitely something that I think about because it's just become so commonplace now, right? Like to have a chief of staff. I still ask myself that, am I hiring that person to work on what I've already figured out or am I expecting them to figure things out? And if you're expecting them to figure things out for you, then it's a very specific person you can hire, which is a founder they're just choosing not to do a startup at this point. And there are very few people like that. So if I found somebody like that, maybe I would hire them, but I think it's very hard to go out and look for that person and actively seek them out uh, unless you already know them from a network. Another question from Dan in connect. He says, I've read that a 50, 50 split is a good way to divide your time and focus between marketing 
and product. How do you split your time between building product and marketing channels? So I wish I had like a good answer for it in terms of I was doing it very well. I think it fluctuates, obviously. Yes, at least still in that stage where you're not really doing marketing as much you're doing like early customer development. So we have a product, it works, it kind of, it sells, people come on the site, they buy it. But I don't think we can go out and start marketing it in a big way because I don't think we have identified exactly who are or like that predictably predictable revenue book style of identifying that niche. So until I think you do that, you're actually not marketing as much as just trying to find that niche. Once you do it, I think that's actually the time if you have the money to hire somebody to run the marketing for you. So up until then, you can get a team to write blog posts for you or something. I I would say probably in terms of pure marketing, I only spend 10, 15% of my time, but I spend a lot more time, maybe 35% just talking to customers and trying to find that market segment. I don't want to call it marketing as much as I want to just call it customer development. And the rest of your time goes into the product, of course, yeah. Very nice. Let's see, we're coming up to the close, but I feel like, I'm curious, I want to, I have two, two closing questions. One is you built support, B, bootstrapped it to 45K MRR, and now you're looking to do that plus beyond with Magic Bell. Something that so many people struggle with is getting the first 100, 200 customers. How did you do that with Support Bell? Or now I'm mixing up Support B and, sure. and yeah, how are common. and are you doing this a similar thing with Magic Bell or are you not there yet with Magic Bell? In Support B, I would say it was a lot. I think I wasn't like paying that much attention to how it would go from 200 to 2,000, and I think that was a fatal mistake. I was like, I thought just getting to 200 is enough and then getting to 400 is enough. So while in Magic Bell, of course, we are trying to get from whatever we have to 200 and then to 400. I think what we are trying to figure out also is, is going from 200 to 400 a lot easier than going from, let's say 10 to 200. And where to find these people? Obviously, I think content remains for most things like content remains a great channel. If you are part of an accelerator like Y Community, you also find a lot of early customers just from that network. And, and that's why I think even if you're not raising like big money, I think joining something like Tiny Seed or another bootstrapped accelerator is a great idea because early on, you really want to find people who are already primed to try new things. It's a certain kind of mindset almost. Beyond that, of course, like just the usual channels, SEO and product. I was surprised honestly by just how well product hunt and even TechCrunch works still in terms of like actually finding you real customers or even hacker news. Again, you don't want to rely on them long-term, but just to get your early customers so you can understand who to sell to, these channels work pretty well. Nice one-time bumps. So as yeah. we close out, my final question is, it's, it's around raising funding. And to me, why is Magic Bell a fundable idea? And was support be also fund, you know, a fundable company and you just decided sure. to keep it bootstrapped? Support was definitely very fundable. If you look at front, if you look at help scout, they've all gone on to raise a lot of money. So it was, we were in that first wave of with help scout, the shared inbox startup. It was definitely very fundable. I think one, it was definitely harder to raise money back in 2012. It's definitely not anywhere like uh, what it is today. But then second, I think I also didn't understand the model very well. I don't know if you ever early on thought like this, but 
if my ARR was already 250K, I was very reluctant in raising 250K because I always thought mm. I'm already making 250K a year. But then that's just because that will come over a year, then the fees will go out or whatever. But this is 250K now to deploy. So I think I had some of those basic models wrong. And I think that showed in my pitch. Uh, I wasn't really thinking about what's in it for the investors. You can't go to them and expect them to just help build a good business. They, they do actually want their money back multiple times, probably actually hundred times. So I didn't really quite understand all of that. So between just the scene and my lack of understanding, I couldn't raise money. And I think also partly because, like I said, I was a bit reluctant going down because I just wasn't willing to trade off my time entirely. What makes okay. Magic Bell a fundable idea? So what we are doing is we are enabling each application to build a better notification experience. And well, just when you think about that, that's a big market and that's growing each day. Every day you have more SaaS apps, you have more mobile apps, you get more notifications. So it's a problem that's actually growing. So one is that. The second is, if you look at some of our competitors, the incumbents like Twilio or SendGrid that are doing a piece of that problem, they're already pretty big. And so there are there's a lot of precedent in terms of just how big these companies can become. So, and then we have a bunch of customers already that are paying us. So there are some almost in terms of what we can charge them, what the life, like we have zero churn so far in the last eight months. And which is not a lot, but it's still enough to know that the SaaS flywheel will kick in. So when you put all of that together, that's a pretty convincing pitch, I think. Doesn't make it easy to raise, but it's like a start. Yep. And uh, it's spoken for itself, raising almost 2 million, 2 million bucks. Congrats on that. Hannah, thanks so much for joining me today. If folks want to keep up with what you're working on, that's magicbell.com. And on Twitter, you are Una Mas Hana. Little Espanol there for those folks in the know. Una Mas Hana. Thanks again for uh, joining me. Thank you so much. It was great. Bye. All right. And thank you for joining me. Today's episode was brought to you by Rewardful. Rewardful is quickly becoming the go-to platform to set up affiliate, referral, and partner programs for your SaaS membership or subscription business. Rewardful handles all subscription billing scenarios such as free trials, upgrades, downgrades, cancellations, refunds, and pro-rated charges out of the box with their simple 15-minute setup. They're the only platform that has a built-in affiliate finder that crawls the web and surfaces high-quality, relevant affiliates for your program. Simply search by keyword, competitor, or alternative names and reach out to the best affiliates in your market to take the program to the next level. Thanks for joining me. See you in a couple weeks.